morning. My name is Will Anderson. Uh, my wife and I have been uh, here at Strong Tower since about six weeks before uh, we entered into COVID. Uh, I reached out to Chris in a season of weariness and uh, my wife and I were both experiencing burnout. Just had too much on our plates and, and he said, uh, you know, come to Strong Tower and just, have, just let it be a place of rest. And uh, for the last few years, it has been. And so it's a, it's a joy to be able to open the word with you this morning. It's a joy to, to share uh, life and ministry uh, and faith with y'all. I'm so thankful that Pastor Chris uh, trusts me and the elders trust me enough to, to be up here this morning and to preach the word. Um, I texted him, I texted him uh, earlier this week. And I just said, man, I'm tired. I said, part of what I'm tired, or part, part of my, my weariness, I said, I don't want to preach angry. But every time, you know, you, 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 can, you can walk by, you know, a business and the TV will be on. You just, you know, see what's scrolling across. It's like you can't protect yourself from the fatigue in these days. Whether it's a, a young man being shot in the back 60 times in the midst of a, a traffic violation, whether it's the, the Tennessee state legislature passing laws that functionally makes being homeless a felony offense, why is it that, why, why is it that providing mental health supports for our most marginalized neighbors is dangerous socialism, but there's universal housing available if you commit a felony? I'm tired, y'all. I'm weary. We have to second guess about whether or not we should go to community events because there's the chance that we're going to be faced with weapons of war. I'm tired. I'm tired that it, it's emotionally costly that I have a wife who works in a public school and I got to worry about some kid bringing a gun to school. I'm worn out. And so I texted Chris. I said, I just want to preach some happy stuff. <laughs> I got some bad news. <laughs> we going to get there. But the sermon that I'm writing, or that, that, that I spent the last few weeks working on, it happened within the context of my personal life. And within my personal life, things have been strained. For a job, I work with young men in North Nashville, most of whom come to me through juvenile court. I work with incarcerated and formerly incarcerated men. And we live in a city where we are all experiencing the crunch of the, the shortage of housing. I don't know about y'all, but sometimes my wife and I have the blessing to own our home, but sometimes I'll, I'll go on Redfin or Zillow and I'll look at that number and I'll go, wow, my house is worth a lot. But that number don't mean nothing because I can't afford to move anywhere. Right. Hey, maybe we should cash out and then be broke. 
And as I work with, with folk who are already on the margins, especially my, my formerly incarcerated brothers, they're feeling that crunch. Because you think it's hard to find a house for us. You got a couple felonies on your back. You living on a fixed income. I got a man I'm working with. I got two guys I work with. They make, they're on a fixed income of less than $850 a month. And it comes with a stipulation that if they go get a job, they lose those benefits. How are they supposed to make it? One of these individuals I've, I've been working with, and he's been living in a house that is owned by a drug dealer. It's the only place that he could afford to keep a roof over his head. And we've been working for a long time trying to get him out. He says, I don't feel safe. And we say, we're, we're trying, we're working. And I got competent people that are volunteers. There's not a shortage of elbow grease. There's not a shortage of love. There's not a shortage of man hours of people that are working just trying to find this man another place to be. And being that the house is owned by a drug dealer, this man is not good for business because he keeps chasing folk out. So the drug dealer evicted him the week of July 4th, which is not a good week to try to find a hotel room. Fortunately, we were able to find a place to stick him for a few days. And, and this is a man that I've looked in his eyes and I said, we're not going to leave you. You can trust us. We have your back. We got you. Don't worry. And now we're looking at a situation in which he's facing homelessness in a state that just criminalized homelessness. And I told him, I said, I said, I don't know what's going to happen, but I need you to know you're the last thing I think about when I fall asleep. And you're the first thing I think about when I wake up. And this situation, it was like I was just in a vice grip. I said to my wife, I said, I feel like I'm walking around with a 200-pound sandbag on my shoulders, and I don't know how to take it off. And I feel this tension. I'm, I'm going to be real, real honest with you all right now. I feel this tension because in my work with these men, I, I love them. It's not a project. They're people with souls and stories and histories. And so I enter into their struggle and I don't know how not to. And so when they're suffering, I take on that suffering. And I feel it because people that I love are hurting and desperate. And then I get caught in this place where, where what, I've been, what I've been processing through is I believe that I'm supposed to love them. I believe that we're supposed to bear each, bear each other's burdens. But what I don't know how to do yet is how do I be best for them and best for my wife and best for my daughter and best for my business partners and the volunteers that I support? Because if I'm, if I'm struggling, I'm not best for them. If I'm burnt out, I'm not best for them. They need me to show up. I need me to show up because if I'm, if I'm buried under anxiety and stress, I'm not as creative as I need to be. I'm not as diligent and hardworking as I can be. I'm not all of who God created me to be for the good of other people if I just feel like I'm walking around carrying a sandbag all the time. And so this, this sermon is born out of that weight of looking at the news and seeing things 
that say that desperate people are getting more desperate. And unfortunately, we live in a nation where we have collectively decided that the way that we deal with desperation is incarceration. I'll tell you, y'all, I hate meth. I also hate the war on drugs. I hate street drugs. I don't want my friends who are living in addiction to be locked up. I don't want them to be ripped away from every supportive relationship that they have to be thrown into a box. And then functionally five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, we pull them out and we say, have you paid your debt to society? That ain't it. I'm tired. And in that weariness, in that weariness, the, the Holy Spirit has showed up. Because I said to Chris, I said, I just want to preach the good news about how God shows up in struggle and we don't have to worry because God is always there. And as soon as, I, as soon as I ended my conversation with Chris, I, there was that still small voice of the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit was communicating to me is that the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God and the providence of God and the miracles of God have always and only ever shown up in the midst of struggle. It's not the absence of struggle that shows us the goodness and sovereignty of God, but it's in the midst of the struggles, in the midst of the wilderness. It's in the lion's den. It's when you're feeling hungry. It's when you're feeling anxious. That is when we experience God show up. You know, as, the, as, as the old saints would say, he makes a way out of no way. They weren't saying that from the mountaintop. They weren't saying that when everything was good. They were saying that in the midst of struggle, in the midst of hard times. Looking up and saying, I believe. I believe. And then when he did, and then when he did, they look around and they say, won't he do it? So my sermon title this morning is, is, I don't remember, can I get that again? The goodness of God in bad times. The goodness of God in hard or bad times. My big idea this morning is that God's primary instruments for bringing about his purposes in this world are his people. That situation that I talked about with this, with this man who's in, who's in this difficult situation trying to find housing, I got to the point where I said, okay, if we can just find him a vehicle so that after he gets evicted, he's not totally without shelter. He can at least have a dry place. He said to me, he said, I don't need you to find me an apartment. Just find me a car. I said, and I talked to the other people on the volunteer staff. And we said, man, this is not ideal. But if it's the best we can do, we'll, we'll pray that God provides us a car. So I started praying, Lord God, provide us a car, provide us a car. And I don't know if y'all know, I, I reached out to a friend of mine who works in the used car business. I said, hey, man, can you help me find a car? He said, what's the budget? I was like, he going to make a way. He goes out, he looks, he gets back to me, he says, man, I've never seen the used car market like it is right now. I've been working in this thing for 20 years. I have never seen stuff as expensive as it is right now. I can't find you a beater that I can put some elbow grease into and get him rolling. I don't know what to do. 
So I'm laying in my bed, man, I don't know what to do. Let's just find a vehicle. We'll come back to that man. I want to start with the good news that as Christians, we hold to the truth that in the midst of struggle, God is sovereign and he is in control. Before we go anywhere, we need to start with the goodness and power of God in the midst of hard times. Something that I have to come back to and remind myself of regularly is Colossians 1, 15 through 20, where it's talking about Jesus. And Paul writes, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, that's Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I got to come back to that regularly. I got to remind myself that there's nothing that's going to flow down from the Supreme Court of the Tennessee legislature. There's nothing that's going to happen on Wall Street that's going to change this. I'm going to be honest, there's a lot of days where I have to approach this text with the attitude of, I believe God help my unbelief. Because I look around and I see those whom I love suffering. And I need to cling to that prophetically. I need to cling to that as faith. But the word is clear. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 8, it says, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be encouraged. Romans 8, 39, Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The goodness of God is always most clearly seen within the context of struggle and pain and suffering. It is in the midst of hardship that we have the clearest vision of God's providence and power. This is central to our faith. In fact, it is the center of our faith. The highlight of the Christian year is an empty tomb. The highlight of the Christian year is an empty bloody cross. We as Christians see salvation within the context of struggle. Those of us who claim to worship a resurrected Christ, those who point to an empty tomb, those who believe that death on a cross wasn't enough to keep him dead, those of us who believe that the power of the ruling religious elite in collusion with political jokers wasn't enough to rob Jesus of his authority. We know that hard hard times don't mean that God is absent. We know that God listens and he delivers. We know that he makes a way. I came up in ministry in a little missionary Baptist church out north, and they would sing that song and say, I will trust 
In the Lord I will trust. In the Lord. And then I love, I love the, the, the turn in the second verse. It wasn't just that these two things are two different ideas that happen to work within the timing scheme, but I think that these two things are tied together because the second verse said, I'm going to treat everybody right. These things are tied together because God is good in the midst of struggle, because God shows up in the midst of our pain. What does that mean for us as believers? What does that mean for how we interact with a struggling world? What does it mean when we see those that we love barely holding on? The song tells us it's, it's, not, it's not just that we're going to trust in the Lord, but that trust in the Lord bears fruit in how we interact with the world around us. God uses people to accomplish his purposes. And so this, this past couple of weeks, I've been praying for a miracle. I've been holding out for a miracle. I've been holding out for God to do something miraculous and to provide in such a way that demonstrated that he cares for this guy that I, that I love, that he cares for me. I needed God to show up and do something that didn't make financial sense, didn't make circumstantial sense. And I don't know about you, but I, I, get, I get deep in my head, especially when I start getting anxious, when I get stressed out, I start overthinking stuff. There's, this, there's a TV show on Netflix called, Netflix called Schitt's Creek. It's S-C-H-I-T-T-S, the family name. <laughs> and there's a scene in the show where the mother and son are cooking together and they've obviously never really cooked together. And they get to the point in the baking where there is an ingredient that needs to be folded into the dough. And the mom doesn't know what that means. And the son also doesn't know what that means. And so the mom keeps saying to the son, she says, okay, just fold it in. He says, yes, but what does that mean? She said, you know, just, I've taught you how to cook. Just fold it in. Just go ahead and do it, David. Just fold it in. He says, mom, I don't know what that means. What, what, do, I, what do I do with this? She says, just fold it, just fold it in. I don't know about y'all, but growing up in church, sometimes I get in, into a place of difficulty or struggle, and then you, you turn to the church, you say, I need help. And they say, just trust in the Lord. Okay, I'm going to need you to get really granular for me. Because the bank account still says zero. Just, just, tr just give it to God. Or for me, what I hear all the time as somebody that works with marginalized people is someone will come to me and they say, that's not, that's not your weight to carry. Yeah. Oh, don't worry, that's not your weight to carry. Which to me, in the midst of someone else's struggle and situation, sounds like they're saying, the problem is you're caring too much and Jesus wants you to carry less. Now, I know that's probably not what they intend, but that's what I'm hearing. Just trust in the Lord. I don't know, so I'm sitting in my room like, trust her. I'm still anxious. And so I want to get really granular. And when we talk about miracles, when we talk about trusting on the Lord, when we talk about what God is doing in the midst of struggle, what exactly does that look like? Philippians 3.16. 
Paul lays out the gospel and talking about Christ's righteousness being imparted to us through faith. And in Philippians 3.16, he wraps up that discourse by saying, only let us live up to what we have already attained. Big faith turns into big living. Robust believing turns into robust acting. The way we live is a testament to our theology. As James says, faith without works is dead. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. There's something that is true about us, not that we earn, not that we work for, not that we grind out and through white-knuckling our way into good obedience that we take hold of, but there's something that is already ours that the Apostle Paul says, therefore, live up to what is already yours. When I was coming up, uh, I had I have two siblings, both younger than me, who were both in the STAR program. I tested for the STAR program and did not get into the STAR program. Um, they were both better students than myself, which meant that around the time of report cards, I did everything that I could to have my parents not see the report card. My sister would come, with, come home with her straight A's and, and go to my mom, hey, our work cards came. Oh, oh that's, that's great. That's great. Will, do you have a report card? You know, I think there was like a paper shortage at the mill because of deforestation, which I'm personally very concerned about. And so I think for people with like the best grades, they just didn't bother printing it because like it wasn't as urgent of a situation. So maybe in like three weeks, I don't know, I don't know. Maybe we'll hear something. Eventually they would find the report card and there would be um, some things other than A's and B's. And I remember there was one chair in the house that when my father passes away was going to burn, which is where I sat only when the report card came home. And I remember sitting in this chair, which was very uncomfortable, and sitting there with my dad, and he's looking at the report card, and he's, he's looking at these C's and D's, and he says, well, these are not acceptable. I said, but if you look at my GPA, it's average. I'm going to give a word of advice to young folk in the house. Never use at least I'm average as a defense of yourself. Because the first thing my dad said was, oh, average. He said, well, I'm not average. So what exactly are you implying about your mother? Because if you're 50% me and 50% her and... I test above average. I don't like what you're implying about your mother's intellect. I say, okay, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> and eventually he'd come around and he'd say, Will, you are an Anderson. And Andersons don't get C's and D's. He had a standard for us as his kids because of being his children. It wasn't the family that I chose. 
But it was the family that I was born into, and because of that, it came with certain expectations that I would live up to academically, whether or not I was excited about it. Average was not acceptable growing up as an Anderson. For those of us who are a part of Christ's family, let us live up to what we have already attained. Not because you earned it, not because you were good enough to make it, but because of who you are in Christ, there are expectations that will preclude you from looking like the world around you. There is a difference of culture within our family with how we interact in the midst of dark times. There's a difference of culture within our family, the the family of God, that when things go awry in the world around us, we don't just sit back or hunker down, but rather that's when we get extra busy. When the people around us suffer, That's when we get extra busy. John 14, 12 says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Jesus understands that his followers will live like him doing the things that he did, which was meeting the needs of folk who are struggling on the margins of society, going to the edges and loving people there. When we think about Jesus and his earthly ministry, the things that stand out are the miracles, the healings, providing food, raising from the dead, etc., and as I've, as I've been saying, I've experienced some miracles in these last couple of weeks. Let me tell you what that miracle looked like. As I'm working with this guy who I said lives on a fixed income of less than $850 a month, and we're trying to find housing, it's, it's been impossible, impossible to find anything. All the waiting lists are incredibly long. And, and uh, there's just, there just isn't affordable housing. So we're trying to find out what we do with a guy who his sum total income for the month isn't enough to qualify or isn't enough to get into even the most basic accommodations. I have a volunteer that works with me. Her name is Miss Pat. The guys refer to her as Mama Pat. Mama Pat went down. She got, a, uh, she got an application from a place that she found uh, that's a, it's a MDHA facility. She spent a few hours working through the application, set up an appointment, and took him last Tuesday to have a meeting. And they said, I think we can find a spot on the waiting list. Y'all, that's a miracle. A spot on the waiting list in this economy, a spot on the waiting list in, in, in the midst of inflation, and it, in the MDHA facilities, they don't take more than 30% of your income, which means that he's going to have more money than he did before he got evicted. So I said, okay, phew, I don't need to find a car anymore. I had texted Pastor Chris, and I said, I, I'm, I'm trying to look for a vehicle just so this man can have shelter. Pastor Chris posted about it on Facebook. Someone in this church saw the post, 
reached out to me, said, hey, I want to connect you with a friend who goes to a church where they give a lot of stuff away. The friend called me on Thursday, said, hey, we hear you have a need. I want to connect you with my pastor. So the pastor calls me the next day and says, hey, we want to show up for this guy. Let me reach out to some of my business partners who work in automotive, and maybe we can work something out. Next Wednesday, I have a lunch appointment where me and this guy are going to get a car, and he doesn't even know it yet. I was praying, Lord God, can we get a car for him to sleep in and hopefully he can avoid picking up a felony charge just trying to exist. And now this man has long-term housing with more money than he had before and he's going to have a vehicle to get to jobs that he would allegedly work if he worked jobs. But I want to look at what was that miracle because God did not manna that car from heaven. There was a conversation, there was a text that I sent to Pastor Chris who made a Facebook post that someone responded to who sent a contact that got me in contact with someone who referred me to their pastor who reached out to a business partner. Every one of those things was a miracle. Every one of those people was a miracle. We can stand back and we say, oh, God shows up for the least of these. But specifically, how did God show up for the least of these? There were seven miracles that sent text messages and made phone calls. There were seven miracles that took the time to care. I want you to look at your neighbor right now and say, neighbor, you're a miracle. Now look to the other side and say, neighbor, you're a miracle. Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We can look at what's happening in our nation. We can look at the mass shootings. We can look at desperate people getting more desperate. We can look at inflation going up and people who are already struggling to feed their babies having an even harder time. I live in a city where they keep in formula under lock and key. We're going to call ourselves the greatest nation in the world and we locking up our formula from moms just trying to feed their babies? So what does it look like for God to make a way? It looks like the blood-bought miracles to show up, to live up to what they have already attained. As Paul says, ministers of reconciliation, seeking out brokenness, to see God glorified in the midst of struggle. We are the miracles. And so my hope this morning, I love that there was baptisms this morning, because as God, long as God is still rescuing folks, as God is still, long as God is still raising up sinners into saints, as God is still allowing us to show up, as long as we are still filled with the Holy Spirit, it means that God ain't done with my city. It means that there are those in struggle that have a way out because God is still building his church. As long as we still got breath in our lungs, as we still got blood in our veins, as long as we still got brain waves flowing through our prefrontal cortex, God isn't done. He's still causing miracles to happen. He's still providing. He's still showing up. And so, yes, we say, trust in the Lord. Trust in the midst of struggle. Trust in the Lord. 
But those words are empty words. They're not, they're not, it's not just a mental exercise. It's not something that just exists in an ethereal, otherworldly manner. But we understand that those words are words that he enacts through us. God's primary instruments for bringing about his purposes in the world are his people. A life of faith is a life of action. We are people of prayer, but we are people of action. Frederick Douglass is is known for saying in a number of his speeches, he said, I prayed for emancipation for three years. And then the spirit told me that I need to start praying with my feet. A lot of us, we look around at the world around us and we're praying, Lord God, make a change. Lord God, show up and provide. Lord God, do something in the midst. And eventually, at some point, God's going to ask you to pray with your feet, to pray with your budget, to pray with your time, to pray with your zip code, to pray with who you, who you spend your time with. And once again, I want, I, want to, I want to emphasize, because what the enemy loves to do here, what the enemy loves to do is that he, he wants to make you all feel guilty. I've experienced that in my life. The preacher says, this is what you are invited into. This is what you should be living out. And you look at your life and you say, I'm not not doing that. And you go home and then you feel bad. I do not believe that you feeling bad is a form of currency that changes anything. You can go home and you can feel bad. And folks still struggling. You can go home and you can feel bad. And this is what I used to do. This is what I used to do in, in, in my sin as somebody who was like really into theology. I'd go home and I'd feel bad. And then I would just remind myself of certain parts of the gospel. Well, it's not salvation by work alone. Okay, well, I guess, I guess there's enough grace for me to be a goat with good theology. Because in Matthew 25, it says that, that, that there are the sheep, and the sheep are those that meet the needs of those who are struggling. And he says, when you meet those needs, you serve me. And the goats are those who say, but when did I see you hungry? When did I see you struggling? When did I see you incarcerated? He says, the goats depart from me. But I'd made peace with, when I hear those verses preached, I'm just going to feel bad, but it's okay because I'm because when I show up on the final day, God's going to be really impressed with my good theology. And so I'm going to be able to theologize my way out of being a tree with no fruit. That's not what God wants for you. Isaiah 117. When I first discovered this verse in Scripture, I felt seen by the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, Isaiah 117. Learn to do right. Seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. The first two words of this verse are very important to me. In 2012, I moved to the 37208 zip code, which the Brookings Institute in 2019 said had the highest rate of incarceration in the country. I showed up thinking that uh, my good intentions was all that was needed to change some lives. I'd seen the blind side. I knew how this worked. 
And it turned out, according to what I anticipated, that the children who were growing up at the intersection of trauma, government-created ghetto, intergenerational poverty, inequitable school funding, nutrition apartheid, kids that were being orphaned to the prison industrial complex and type 2 diabetes, that what they really needed was a man to sit down and say, you need to take responsibility for yourself. Turns out they needed more than that. And I've spent the last decade learning what that is. Now, by God's grace, he allowed me to continue to show up. But when I stumbled across this verse, learn to do right. Doing right is something that takes practice. If I go in for surgery, I don't want my surgeon to just be well-intended and it's his first day on the job. I don't know about you, my, my wife is gracious. She asked me to cook before I knew how to cook. And so there'd be times where, she, where she'd say, oh, what are we having for dinner? I'm like, it's coming out of the crock pot. We put stuff in. We'll see. Somebody can want to cook. Somebody can want to make a good meal. It doesn't mean it's going to be good. In anything in life, anything in life, if you want to be good at it, you have to become a practitioner of it. You have to practice. You have to put in time. You have to learn. And so especially when we are dealing with issues of human suffering, it's not, it's not just enough. It's, it's a great starting place. Don't get me wrong. We need people who show up and say, hey, I'm willing to learn. But the problem is that we got a lot of folks that show up and say, I'm not willing to learn. Just let me, let me go do it. So become practitioners of doing right. And then I spent some time, I looked at a bunch of different translations of the, of the second line, defend the oppressed. The, the Hebrew there is a, little, is a little enigmatic in that um, the editors, depending on the translation, have to make a choice. Some say defend the oppressed. Others say correct the oppressor. And I love that scripture gives us that choice. Because the last, the, my last point today as we land this plane, I saw, this is a tangent, I saw a comic this morning before I preached that was a gift from the Holy Spirit. It said, it was, it was a comic that said, there is a thin line between a long sermon and a hostage situation. <laughs> By God's grace, we're going to have neither. That, that verse, or that, that line where it says, defend the oppressed or correct the oppressor, I love that it gives us the editorial choice on, on both sides of that, because w the last thing that I want to leave y'all with is, what is God calling you to do? What miracle is God calling you to participate in this week? Yes, we're going to pray, but we're also going to pray with our feet. Yes, we're going to pray, but we're also going to get busy. Yes, we're going to pray, but we're also going to invest in the situation that God has, has, has placed us in because we're going to be practitioners of doing right. I have a little girl, most of y'all have, have seen at some point, she, she loves to dance. She's, she's uh, 17 months and uh, she doesn't understand all of what we're saying yet, but that doesn't mean we don't talk to her and doesn't mean she don't talk back. 
And a couple weeks ago, I forget which headline I had read, but was not feeling optimistic about the state of the world. And I picked her up, and I looked her in the eyes. I said, I wish I could tell you that I want you to just grow up and do whatever makes you happy. I wish I could tell you that, but I can't. I said, I need you to grow up, and you can either build something or you're going to tear something down. But this world needs you. That's where we are. I wish I, I wish I could just spell out some form of the American dream, you know, whatever makes you happy and gets you paid, just go do it. I, I wish I could tell her that, but I can't in good conscience. I want her to know Jesus. I want her to be a part of the body of the church. I want her to grow up as a minister of reconciliation, running towards the suffering, not away from it. So I said, you're either going to defend the oppressed or you're going to be fighting the oppressor. It's one or the other. Some of y'all are called to build up and some of y'all are called to tear down. Some of y'all are supposed to go into politics and some of y'all are supposed to hold politicians uncomfortably accountable. Some of you called to feed the sheep and some of you called to hit wolves in the face with a stick. But none of you are called to do nothing. A lie that exists in the back of many of our souls. There's, there's a little voice that whispers in the back of many of our souls. And young people, I'm talking to you. As you think about and you dream about what the future of your life could be, there is a lie that exists back there. And it whispers, and it doesn't like to be named. But I've had to root this lie out of my mind and out of my soul. There's this little voice that says, what's the safest What's the most comfortable existence I can possibly afford? I've had to root that out. Because it's there. It's constantly whispering. What's, what's the most comfortable existence you can possibly live? And I'm constantly having to name it and grab it like a weed and pull it out of my psyche and say, that is the antithesis of taking up my cross daily. Yes, there is rest. Yes, there is peace. Yes, there is flourishing. But we are called to the task of living up to what we have already attained, which is taking on the mantle of our crucified Savior and running to the places of darkness and struggle, not away from it. God's going to call some of you to be like Rahab, to be working to see Jericho torn down. God's going to call some of y'all to be like the New Testament Phoebe, to work hard, to make a lot of money, to be funding the ventures of God's kingdom. God's going to call some of y'all to be like Noah, to build something to make a way through the storm. He's going to call some of y'all to be like Nehemiah, invest in rebuilding crumbling infrastructure for the sake of the flourishing of our city. God's going to call some of y'all to be like JL. That's the, the lady with the tent post. Y'all remember her? It's in Judges. 
read it with your children after the age of like 15. God's going to call some of y'all to be like King Josiah, to tear down the idols and expel that which is evil. God's primary instrument for bringing about his purposes are his people. I'm going to end in prayer. Lord God, as we look around and we see struggle, as we see corruption, as we see violence, as we see need, I pray that you would give us peace. I pray that you would give us a prophetic peace that doesn't make sense because of our confidence in who you are. Lord God, I pray that you would give us a passion that when we see needs, we would not just stand back, that we would not just issue Hallmark-esque statements over the situations, but that you would give us a passion to get involved. Lord God, you have raised us up for such a time as this, that as our country becomes increasingly steeped in violence and division, you have rescued us You have liberated us from the bonds of sin and death in order to jump into the fray to be change agents of reconciliation and healing and wholeness. Lord God, give us prophetic imagination. Give us kingdom dreams that we would passionately dream about. Lord God, what does it look like to create sustainable housing for folks that need it? What does it look like to to enact policies of grace and goodness and flourishing in our midst? Lord God, specifically for the young people at this church, I pray that you would give them prophetic imagination to dream of a world that could be and then to live lives of uncompromising faithfulness as they pursue that vision. And finally, Lord God, I pray that you would give us power. You said that after you left, you would send your Holy Spirit to indwell in us in power. And so, Lord God, we pray for that power. We pray that you would bless our efforts and multiply our efforts, that you would take the loaves and fishes of our abilities and multiply it in such a way that we see change, that we see goodness and righteousness and justice and flourishing in the world around us. We love you, God, and we pray that you would stay near us in the good times and the bad, in the mountaintops and in the valleys. Be near to us. And hasten the day when we see you face to face and we're able to hear those words, well done my good and faithful servant. We love you, Lord God. And we pray that that love will flow out from us and change Middle Tennessee for the sake of your glory.